1: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. We have Paul Tuff on the show. Paul is the author most recently of Helping Children Succeed What Works and Why. His previous book, How Children Succeed Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character, spent more than a year on the New York Times hardcover and paperback bestseller lists. His first book, Whatever It Takes Jeffrey Kahn's Quest to Change Harlem in America, was published in 2008. He is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where he has written extensively about education, parenting, poverty, and politics. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, NGQ, and in the op-ed page of The New York Times. Thanks, Paul, for chatting with me today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's exciting to chat with you. These issues are being heavily discussed all throughout education right now, so you're kind of on the forefront of some really hotly debated and important issues.
0: Good, yeah. I think so, too. It's stuff I think we're all trying to figure out, and the answers aren't easy.
1: They're not easy or obvious. Absolutely. So a common theme of all of your work seems to be how we can help children in adversity transcend their difficult circumstances. Would you say that's a fair sort of?
0: Yes, I'd say that's my central goal is to try to figure out strategies to do that.
1: And I might even have just quoted you when I said that. Uh, How did you get interested in this topic? For me, certainly as
0: a journalist, it started with my book about Jeffrey Canada. So it was 13 years ago this summer that I went up to 125th Street when I was working as an editor at the New York Times Magazine and met Jeff and asked to write this article about him for the Times Magazine. That took me a year to do. And then that turned into a five-year book project, which ended up with whatever it takes. And Usually, you know, if I take on some a journalistic project for anywhere near that long, like at the end, I feel kind of bored by the subject and feel like I know in every possible angle. And it's just never happened to me with this this particular question this this question of what it is that adversity does to kids and why it makes them difficult to why it makes it difficult for them to succeed in school and outside of school. How you know everything from the neuroscience to the sociology to the uh, politics that surrounds that question. To me, it's just, it's the big one. And I feel like I understand some answers better than I did in 2003. But there's still a lot about it that, you know, frustrates and fascinates me.
1: Yeah, it is endlessly fascinating, this topic. And the question of adversity is it's not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. How much some of these issues you study apply to upper class students?
0: Lots so yeah. in in how children succeed, I wrote explicitly about well off kids and private school kids. I Did some reporting at Riverdale uh, Country School in New York City, and yeah, I think there is a lot about this, you know, this this question of knowing how to manage failure being this important process in kids sort of developing the non cognitive capacities that they need to succeed, and that what parents and teachers and coaches are doing at their best is helping kids learn how to manage those moments of adversity, those moments of failure, and I think we have. Challenges in that dimension, both uh, at the high end and the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. I've done a lot of of speaking now at, at independent schools, and this is a real anxiety, I think, among affluent parents for good reason but in this new book in helping children succeed while i care uh, about the struggles of well off kids i uh, what really motivates me is the struggles of kids who are growing up in poverty or other forms of adversity and so that's what i really wanted to focus in on uh, and i felt uh, after how children succeed came out uh, that i was hearing from a lot of educators or mentors pediatricians people who are working directly with kids growing up in poverty who needed help you know who just just felt like overwhelmed by the by the work that they were doing and intrigued by the research that I was writing about, but that they, did, they didn't feel like there were clear enough answers and strategies in that research, or certainly in my book, to tell them what to do tomorrow morning to help those kids succeed, so that was really my goal with this book.
1: Sure. And You used a phrase that uh, I want to unpack this a little bit. You said non-cognitive capacities. And we fluctuate in our field between what in the world we call these things. Yeah. I mean, depending on our mood, you know. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So it might be like if we didn't have a good meal, we'll say traits. If we like – if if we feel really happy, we'll say like uh, strengths, you know, character strengths. What are these things? Are they personality traits? Are they a set of mindsets and attitudes? You know, um, Carol Dweck, I read an article once. She says we don't focus enough on mid-level personality traits which are sets of mindsets and attitudes. And it seems like in reading your book, you kind of place these things at the mid-level set of personality. Tell me more what you mean by mid-level. So you have the big five traits of personality mm. that are at the top of the hierarchy, things like conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, openness to experience, and neuroticism. Sure. Actually, there's actually in the hierarchy, there's two higher above that, which is just avoidance and engagement. Oh, okay. I didn't know about those. But, okay. But it's all hierarchy. And so if you can go under each one of these personality traits and you get what are mid level facets. So under conscientiousness, there's a lot more specific things like right. resiliency and perseverance and consistency of interest and grit. Grit. Uh, Angela Duckworth would place grit as a facet of conscientiousness. Got it. Yeah, I read an article once where uh, Kyle Dweck has made that argument that we don't focus as much attention on the middle. We focus too much on these big five, you know, yep. just saying conscientiousness. And there's a more granular level at which I relate more to like, she would argue, mind, a set of mindsets and attitudes and things. And in your book, it seems like that's how you want to conceptualize it as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so
0: I, I don't uh, – that that hierarchy is not something that I've thought about a lot. So I don't know if I can comment in a helpful way on sort of where on that hierarchy I think these exist. For me, I feel like the what I was surprised by in the rethinking that went into this book was that you know there's been a lot of debate about the word non-cognitive in non-cognitive skills, and and maybe there isn't sort of isn't debate like everyone agrees it's a terrible word because 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 these things are totally cognitive, Uh, and yet you know we keep using that word. But the word that I actually found that I was wanting to challenge more was skills. So I talked a lot in, or wrote a lot in How Children Succeed about how non-cognitive skills. That's a phrase that James Heckman, the economist, uses. a lot and I was I was following his lead in a lot of what I wrote. And I think that that model, that paradigm of skill development is one that I think it certainly exists in, 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 with a lot of the people I was writing about in How Children Succeed. And I think is one that in the wake of that book and all the research that went into it and Angela's work becoming more popular is one that I think has really caught on with educators. and I I think that makes a lot of sense. I think if you're an educator and you hear that there is this other dimension of abilities that matter in kids in terms of getting them to success, what you understand as an educator is skills, right? That's your job as an educator is to improve the skills of your students. And so if you get this message, which I think is valid that like, we're only actually paying attention to about half of the skills that are, that, that kids have and need to succeed. Um, and we're ignoring this other half, you, you try to turn your attention and using the tools that you have as an educator to this other set of skills. Uh, but I, but I actually think that, that, that in the process of doing that, we've made some sort of conceptual mistakes and that those are, uh, then replicate it as actual practical mistakes in terms of how we try to um, uh, develop these capacities in the classroom uh, and outside of the classroom. And so instead, I, I'm trying to stop using skills, um, and the word that I'm using, which is not necessarily more helpful, is capacities, uh, non-cognitive capacities. Problems with that phrase, as problems with all of these. But but I do think, like I think, language around yeah psychological mindsets, habits, attitudes, or just
1: characters uh, or strengths.
0: Yeah, I mean, but strengths to me, though, is like, strengths to me is just sort of like a synonym for skills, you know, it's like a more, it's like a euphemism almost for skills, right? It's right, a more right. positive way to describe skills. And you,
1: and, you, um, and you stopped calling it character, too.
0: Yeah, I find, and so I find, I find character has some difficulties as well. I mean, what, so one, to, to, to stay in the, in the realm of language for a bit. I think one thing that I realized as I was working on this is that part of like there are a lot of people who get very upset about you know my writing Angela's writing all of the work about grit and character, especially as it relates to low income kids and the thing that I think upsets them is that they hear an implication in what I've written, and I think what Angela's written as well that we're saying that kids who are growing up in adversity don't have enough of grit enough character right and I totally understand that uh, that strong reaction because if you're using words like character and grit that have even if they have sort of a clear just sort of descriptive quality they also have a a sort of like moral valence in terms of how we talk about them right like yeah. grit character fortitude those are just good things to have and people who don't have them we think of them as bad. <laughs> and so what I care about, you know, the research that I care more about is like the neuroscience that talks about how growing up in really stressful environments affects kids psychology and affects their neurology and it affects and that affects their behavior and that affects how they do in school, right? That science I think is what is most important in terms of understanding what's going on with low income kids in school. And there's no reason to attach moral language to any of that, right? Like the kids who are going through existing in stressful situations and having their nervous systems adapt to those stressful situations by like firing up their fight or flight responses and that causes them trouble in school like that's a biochemical process like that is not a moral process right and so using moral language to describe what's happening to those kids and saying well they have trouble persevering because they don't have enough grit. I think that just excludes and turns off a big part of the potential audience uh, for this I think really important message and information and so to me, staying in the realm of you know scientific language, talking about like what the effect of growing up in adversity does to kids, how that plays out in the classroom, it has two advantages. One is that I think it gives teachers some real information, some real ideas about what they can do differently in the classroom in order to help those kids succeed. And two, I think that it's more inclusive. It like stops, it avoids having a significant part of the potential audience for this message, just not want to listen to any of it because they feel like there's something offensive. And
1: again, understandably so about
0: saying poor kids don't have enough character, poor kids don't have enough grit.
1: Fair enough. So, I mean, just in, in a nutshell, you're really interested in how environment shapes the development of these traits. I yes. think we can still agree they're traits, though, in the sense what what we want them to be. We want to develop these traits, so they are traits. We want them to be habits for people. That's all traits are: are habits of mm-hmm. behaviors, patterns of behavior that, are on average, you know, or operate in plentitude, so to mm-hmm. speak. I'm trying to think of like a way of framing that, but that's what you're interested in you know, and there's um you know the the applied psychology department at n y u you draw a lot on their research and the development of executive functions mm-hmm. and i I, was, I thought it was interesting as well in the book there was one uh, researcher I can't remember the name of him right now, but um I think it was a male and he was talking about how he doesn't even want to call these things anything he just wants to like he's like, why do we need to um like pinpoint exactly what these things are called at all why can't we just like show it's kind of like black holes right like we don't know what black holes are but um, we know by the way of the shape of other stars the way they move about that we've we've made a change right so as long as things are moving around you know in a way that uh, we're making a change you know that's positive right
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, so uh, one of the writers who's most influential on me in this new book is Camille Farrington of the Chicago Consortium on Schools Research. And her report, Teaching Adolescents to be Learners, that's a lot of what she talks about there, that really like what we care about is academic behaviors, right? We care about kids showing up to school and being engaged in their work and persevering through difficulty, right? And so I think the researcher you're talking about is Carabo is Jackson, this that's economist right, 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 from Northwestern right, right. University. And some of what you're saying is something that I kind of layered on to his research. I don't know if he would necessarily want to claim all of that. But mostly like what I took from his study, you know, so he's an economist. And so he only has the tools of, of an economist. And so he was only able to, to measure So he did this big study of, of like 400,000 ki- ninth grade students in North Carolina who their teachers were, how they responded to having those teachers, what value added those teachers brought. And he discovered that there were two different types of teachers, the ones who were uh, reliably able to improve their students' test scores, and then the ones who were reliably able to improve their students' standing in this proxy measure that he created, which was just attendance, uh, behavior, incidents, GPA, and grade on time grade progression, right? And so if you were in certain teachers' classrooms, you were more likely to show up to school work hard, thus get a good GPA, graduate, you know, finish your year on time and not get in trouble, right? So to my mind, like as a thought experiment, that to me is really cool because first it says like, okay, well, we know something is going on in those classrooms, right? We know that those, we don't, we can't say if it's grit or perseverance or self-control or what that those teachers are developing in their students, but we know that their students are behaving in ways that we want them to behave. Uh, So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that it then as a thought experiment, it then pushes me towards saying like, so why isn't that, enough? Like, Why isn't that what I want to know? How students are going to respond to whatever climate the teacher is creating in the classroom. And I don't need to know, that, you know I don't need to give those kids tests of different psychological qualities, especially given the fact that the tests we have for these sorts of qualities are not, uh, not yet at a stage of being real reliable. Why not instead look at the behaviors and figure out how uh, to help teachers create a climate in the classroom that makes kids behave in the way that we want them to behave?
1: Right. So one part of what we want is for them to behave in ways we want to behave. But another part of what we want, and I think you would agree, is we want them to behave like they want to behave too. We actually care about them and their dreams sure. and their own unique desires. One criticism of, of your book could potentially be that it's all about compliance. and you want and, and I don't think you would make that case because you talk a lot about the importance of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about autonomy for a second because I think sure. sometimes that can conflict with us wanting people to behave the way we want them to behave mm-hmm. versus if we give them autonomy, we start to see their own unique talents, create creativity, expressions come out in a ways that we never could have predicted ahead of time. Sure. Yeah. So how, how, do, how do schools deal with that dual sort of you know, thing?
0: It's a great question. So, I, I mean, I think, and I think about it as a—I uh, have never been a teacher, so sometimes I think about this as a parent more than as a teacher, right?
1: Or as a speaker as well. I would say you're—you're you're a teacher in a way. Uh,
0: well, that's nice of you to say, but you know, the real teaching
1: <laughs> happens okay. in the classroom. Fair enough,
0: fair enough. Uh, I'm too scared to try. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, so the, like I've got two kids, and and uh, they're one and and six, and so I think with with both of them all the time about how uh, about their behavior and what my job is in terms of shaping it. Um, and so I think there's a little of both. Like uh, I mean, obviously I want my I think mostly about my older son. Uh, I think most uh, I think that I want him to become who he naturally is. But I also feel like part of my job as a as a parent and I think part of a teacher's job is that, you know, we understand better than kids do how certain behaviors lead to certain outcomes, right? And so our job is to try to shape those behaviors, uh, to help shape those behaviors. And so partly it's just a practical question, which is that I think that the tool that we usually use with kids in school and outside of school are, are these behaviorist tools, you know, is is rewards and punishments. And so what really struck me about the research, both Roland Fryer's research about the the limitations of incentives in an educational setting, and then Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan's research about the importance of self-determination, intrinsic motivation in motivating kids to – get engaged and work hard in school. What I took from all of that is that actually what works for kids is not the kind of punishments and rewards that we often use in in schools these days. It is the kind of uh, creating the kind of environment that makes them feel intrinsically motivated to do things, right? So, so, um, So that's a lot of what I write about. All of that said, I feel like you know, I I do think that it's okay to say like we want to help kids be intrinsically motivated to work hard, figure out how to achieve their goals, stick with things for a long time, bounce back from disappointments, like those I'm I'm ready to like embrace as kind of universally positive goals but what kids do with that how they shape that what they want to be excited about what they want to learn that's where i feel like autonomy makes a whole lot of sense and 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 i think that's what i take from a lot of angela's work as well that like she's trying to figure out how to make how to help students become gritty about Anything, right? How to make them, and and by gritty, you know, in lots of ways, she means passionate, excited, um, and and I think what a lot of you know, well-off parents have found is that in trying to push kids uh, to be a certain way, to to like to to be, you know, involved in a million different activities and engaged in a lot of different activities, that kids. Kids often take that on in a compliant kind of way, um, but but it's only when we give them a little bit of autonomy to choose what they're interested in and choose how they're going to be interested in it that they get uh, the kind of deep motivation that's going to turn into passion and grit.
1: Yeah, it, no, I agree with all that. It's just There's this quagmire, I think, that we're in because – um, if you want to make changes in public policy these days it seems like you have to show that you've made a change in standardized achievement test scores and um, so much of, of the of your book is focused on six defining success as academic success mm-hmm. as achievement uh, test scores um, and you know well, yeah.
0: uh, I mean I would I would question that I mean because you know, I think part, a big part of what, what, certainly in How Children Succeed, a big part of what I was writing about was, and, and what got me interested in, in non cognitive skills in the first place is this idea that there are qualities that are not measured in standardized test scores and that our focus in the last 15 years in education on standardized test scores as the measure of kids' success has been limited. Has held us back, right? But that said, I think that like I don't take my skepticism about standardized test scores to mean like that I don't care about kids learning stuff, you know. Uh, Which is why I feel like you know GPA is is it's not sort of the perfect measure of of kids' success, but it's it's better, right? And because it measures two things, it measures just cognitive skills, but it also measures like engagement and motivation and how hard you work. So I don't want to sort of get away from. The idea of measurement in school and and in sort of thinking about academic success is important, but I think you can do that without relying just on standardized test scores.
1: Well, let's discuss this. This is a a really awesome conversation. So is the title of the book like, should it have been helping children succeed in school? Or like if you – let's just do a thought experiment that you wrote a book called Helping Children Succeed in Life. Would Would it have been any different than what you put in this book?
0: I don't think so, no. I mean, I think, so certainly there's a, a significant audience for this book, I hope, is teachers, is educators. I feel like most. In, in, if we're thinking as a society about how we want to create an infrastructure to help uh, kids who are growing up in poverty to do better, the tool that we have that is most likely to be effective is public schools, because that's where, that that's just, that, that's the government institution where kids are spending most of their time, that if we want to try and find a lever to help kids succeed, that's the one that's going to be potentially most immediately effective. So I guess I, I don't, but I also think like there's a distinction between success in school and success outside of school. But I think there are a lot of connections between those two things, both in terms of like the very sort of practical fact that succeeding in school has strong correlations with succeeding in life because of how the job market and everything else works. But also that the kind of non-cognitive capacities that lead, I think, to success in school are not in opposition to succeeding outside of school. Like if you can bounce back from disappointments, if you can become passionate about something and and hang on to that passion, if you can persist tasks for a long time, those things
1: are useful. What if you're like a troublemaker or a class clown and you end up starting a a startup someday? Let's say you drop out of high school and you create like an amazing startup. Let's say the qualities you have are not self-control but actually rebelliousness. You know, What do you do with those kids? Well,
0: you know, I think that those kids, I think we should have schools that where those kids can succeed, you know, because if if you're the kid who's a class clown and is going on to run a startup, you have a lot of other really positive qualities, right? That that should be a positive thing in school. And I think good teachers have always figured out how to turn class clowns into successful students, right? It's like, yeah, they they need a different kind of, of input. They need more autonomy. They need more room to perform, right? But like, I just don't buy that those kids will like just that school has nothing to offer them and they need something else. I think like those, you know, I mean, like anytime you read biographies of successful entrepreneurs, but also like, you know, actors, writers, it's like, I mean, a lot of them have that sort of rebellious quality or rebellious moment. And the ones I think that go on to success are ones that are able to combine that with like actual knowledge about the world, actual, you know, uh, skills outside of that rebelliousness. Uh, And I think the best schools should be able to be the instrument that helps give those kids the tools that they need to succeed and not to change them, but to help them grow.
1: Sure, I you know I want to be clear. I think that the the subset of what non cognitive capacities that you highlight in the book are extremely important to develop. And I want to be clear about that. I am saying there's more than that than mm-hmm. just grit, curio- executive functions. You know, there's the whole imagination brain network that rarely gets discussed. And that's my own little pet thing because I love creativity and imagination. Yeah. And I think you know those sets of skills fall by the wayside as well. So I would just want to make sure we add them to the list when we're having yep. policy discussions and say it's not all about persevering in general, you know, sometimes like yep. some of these people who end up creating an amazing startup someday might be really gritty about one specific thing. And we may be blinded, you know, we may be limiting that potential because we're forcing them to be good at all the school classes, Yeah, you know,
0: oh, absolutely, as opposed yeah. to
1: giving them resources to develop their specific passion.
0: Yeah. And I mean, so uh, at, toward the end of the book, I read about these schools that are becoming known as deeper learning schools. And yeah, one of the reasons I'm so drawn to those schools is, is that I think that they, as far you know, in terms of what I've seen, and certainly in a public school universe, they do the best job so far. They're still not doing a good enough job, and no one's doing a good enough job, but they do the best job of helping kids find those interests and use them in an academic context, right? So that your work, your actual like schoolwork is not filling out you know, worksheets and repeating the same math equations over and over again. It is like building a robot, build you know, making art, directing a play, like having a debate with classmates, like all of that kind of deeper learning activity, I think, is important on so many levels. And, and it's something that very few low income kids are exposed to these days. You know, I mean, I, th- I think it helps in all of these You know, DC and Ryan kind of qualities. It makes kids feel more autonomy, more competence, more sense of belonging when they're doing that kind of schoolwork. But I think it also, you know, it does involve creativity. It does involve thinking outside the box. It does involve imagination. And I just think we're not using those tools enough, especially in low income communities.
1: For sure, for sure. And then what about well being? I don't think you used the word happiness once in this book. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yeah, I think the word happiness is in there. At all. So, so there's this emerging field of, called positive education. And I hope uh-huh. you come to the conference this summer, by the way, in Texas. Thank uh, you. I'll send you all sorts of invitations. Please. It's the world's first Good. ever positive education conference. And, you know, all of your buds will be there like Martin Sogman and Angela Duckworth and all, Great. You know, all these individuals. So the question there is, you know, how can we maybe even redefine the idea of success to incorporate, you know, metrics moving the dial and well-being as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a great question. And I I do think that I be, because I am mostly focused in my writing these days on kids who are growing up in poverty, I do think that for me anyway, it's hard when you're writing about those kids not to fall into a kind of like, you know, emergency mentality where like you just have to save them. And I do feel like, you know, things especially like cite the statistic that just always sticks with me that so there are 15 million American kids in poverty and about 7 million of those 15 million are living in deep poverty, meaning they're at 50% of the uh, poverty line or below, which is $12,000 a year for a family of four, right? So this is half of all poor kids, about 10% of kids, American children, zero to 18 altogether, are in this like really deep poverty. And and when you're, for those kids like it's not just the money, like the money is part of it materially. Obviously, they're really suffering. But that is also tending to go hand in hand with all kinds of social dysfunctions that make their lives really difficult and affect them on a neurobiological level as well as every other level. So for those kids, like, I absolutely want them to be happy. But I feel like there are so many obstacles in their way to getting that to getting there. And so I feel like trying to create an education system that helps those kids develop the skills they need to just change their lives, you know, to get to another place, I think is really important. But I do think that, like, I do think that I fall prey to that kind of emergency mentality when I'm thinking about those kids that I think, like, I just want them to, like, survive and have the skills they need to do better and to have a different, you know, have different opportunities, have different possibilities. And so I think it is really important to think at the same time for those kids, right, how do you make them feel a sense of well-being? How do you help them feel a sense of well-being? How do you help them feel a sense of belonging and connection and purpose? And when educational interventions can do that, and there are lots of examples out there, some of which I read about in Helping Children Succeed, I think that is the big win. That's the big
1: victory. Absolutely. So let's make some, we can make some direct linkages here between the PERMA model of well-being that like Martin Seligman came up with and your two biggies. That you come up when you're, let's map them onto each other, so we okay. can actually make a direct uh, link to the, the the happiness literature. Because we'll see after all that, I don't think what you're talking about is altogether very different from what well-being researchers are calling well-being. You know, okay, good. So, so okay, let's map them. So PERMA involves uh, the P is positive emotions, uh-huh. E is engagement, R is positive relationships, M is meaning slash purpose, and A is a sense of um, achievement or you know mastery. Uh-huh. So in a lot of ways, we could probably take the PERMA model and condense it to, I don't know where the positive emotions is, you know, I don't know, that's, you don't talk too much about that, but your two biggies are a sense of connection and relatedness mm-hmm. and a sense of growth and potential or giving people work that is challenging, rigorous, and meaningful. Yes. So you have the engagement part maps on to the growth of potential section, then the meaning and the M and the A, which is achievement, maps on to that. And then you have the social relationships that maps onto the relatedness, mm-hmm. and maybe we can say once we satisfy your two biggies, positive emotions will come as a result
0: is that yeah, you- I mean, I think that's my hope, but I think, but I think you're pointing out an important thing, which is that I'm kind of using that as a i'm kind of identifying that as like an end an end goal rather than an important tool you know and, and I think it, that is sort of what's part of what's inherent in perma that like when kids when anybody feels like good when you feel a sense of well being yeah. and you feel happy, it's going to be easier to do all these other things. It's easier to work. It's easier to learn. It's easier to read. It you makes
1: know? you want to have more grit. You know, when, when yeah. people are dying all around, I mean, when you're in such a horrible, poverty stricken environment where like your life is in danger, right? It's very hard to um, be forced to have grit. Yeah. And, um,
0: yeah, it's really hard. And I feel like I don't know if this is, is responsive to your question, but you know, it it just strikes me. I feel like one element of poverty and kids' lives that we don't really talk about enough is just that like poverty just, I mean, growing up in real adversity can just make kids sad. You know, there's there's a lot of kids who are like, I feel like we don't think about that sort of straightforward, like emotional, psychological effect that growing up in adversity can have on kids, which is that a lot of them do feel like depressed, you know, that like, and I find this all the time talking to kids in school who are growing up in real adversity. Absolutely, there are some who are you know who are happy who are succeeding who are are overcoming those difficulties but for a lot of them having being in a situation where like you're constantly feeling like you're not measuring up in school. You're in a very stressful situation at home. You are, you know, perhaps in a neighborhood that itself is stressful. Like, just on a day-to-day basis, that just wears you down, you know? And so giving kids ways of overcoming that, uh, tools, um, and just opportunities to feel good, to feel connection, to feel uh, positive, I think is uh, not only a good end goal, but also a good instrumental goal.
1: Right. It's both. Like, we we can call that. It's such a deep a deep philosophical question. How do we know as educators that we have succeeded, that we've succeeded? You know, not the students have succeeded, that yeah. we've succeeded in our goal. You know, is it when we have raised all of our standardized test scores to 100%? How are we done? We're like, oh, we've succeeded. Is right. it when we've created students that are happy, healthy? When we not, I don't mean to say created students. not what I mean to say at all. We, yeah. You know, we've got it. We've obtained that goal. You know, I think it's such a, I don't have the answer by any means, but how the heck do we know that what? You know, and I guess different schools that you visited have different goals, right?
0: Yeah, I think that they do have different approaches. And I think. You know, I, you're making me think a lot about, about this question of, of just sort of, like, mental well-being. Because I do think that there's, like, there are some teachers in any kind of school, but especially in high-poverty schools, who, like, there's a risk on the other side, too. That, like, you have those teachers who are just great at, like, at being fun, you know, and making students feel, like, happy. And, they, yeah, that's the class that's always fun to go to. But they're actually not, like, teaching anything, you know what I mean? And, and, like, so a little of that is a really positive thing, but, like, when you're not actually expanding your students' opportunity in the long haul, when you're just making them feel Feel good in the
1: in the moment. Can I clarify that they're not they're not necessarily explicitly learning the lesson plan we've given that we want to be learned, but we don't know that they're not learning a key foundation. I mean, it's important in life to learn how to deal with adversity through humor, to deal with adversity through play. In fact, I use the word play in this book, and I, I like that. Um, and I was like, expand that, expand that. It's, yeah, it's yeah. like you—you you, you killed me. You used the word once, and then you, in the next sentence, I think you redefined it as something else. As executive functions, and I'm like, no, no, it is what it is. It's right. something, yeah. So I wish I could find the page right now of what it Yeah, was.
0: I want to know. I mean, I talk—I certainly talk about play in early childhood as like that. That's that's the thing that kids learn from. That's what you know. I talk about this Jamaica experiment in Jamaica yeah. where where like that's what changed things for kids was their parents, you know, being coached to play with them more. I think all that stuff is important. I, I just and you know, so I'm ninety-five percent going with you on this. I just think that there is a risk though of that if you focus too much on kids' happiness and say like that's what's important is giving them only a sense of well-being, that like for me, it's got that's gotta be twinned with increasing their opportunities.
1: One of Marty's grad students has gone over to like Bataan, Nations of Bataan, and has has uh. um, given training on like 10 modules to increase well-being. And they found that by training and starting there as a starting point, they found like 0.6 standard deviation increase in standardized test scores. They found uh-huh. that all these outcomes, these kinds of things that you um, talk about in this book, came happen to come as a result of teaching. Like mindfulness was one of the exercises. Yeah. Um, creativity. Um. Just like understanding like, gr- like gratitude, like positive psychology exercises, you know, like gratitude and optimism. You, talk, you do talk about optimism and things, but kind of, you know, explicitly training the teachers on these things, increased standardized test scores, um, increased the kind of outcomes like school attendance and things that we need to show public policymakers uh, right. change. So yeah. I think it is kind of a false dichotomy sometimes between either this or that.
0: I think you're totally right. And I mean, to me, like a lot of, you know, when I talk about like, what a teacher needs to do is just sort of change the climate in the classroom, the environment in the classroom. Like, I think that's a lot of what it comes down to, you know, that there are a lot of classrooms, especially that that where low income kids are studying, that are contentious, you know, that are where there's a lot of conflict, excuse me, where there is not a lot of creativity, not a lot of opportunity for imagination, where there's a lot of, you know, like repetitive work, a lot of basic instruction. And all of that, I think, is part of classroom climate. You know, I just think it's like to me the message that's important to give to teachers is that like classroom environment that's most beneficial for kids certainly involves happiness and fun. It just isn't. It is. It's not just limited to that. That like that. Sure. That the most successful classrooms pair happiness and fun and belonging with challenge and
1: yeah. work and absolutely. Uh, and that's part of the perma. You know, is the a. You know, yeah, often. absolutely. Um, and I want to give credit here to Marty's grad student. His name is Alejandro Adler. Great. Yeah, he's doing really great work on that topic. Thanks for letting me ask you these questions, by the way. It's, it's, it's such an important conversation, and it's, um, it's fun to talk about these things.
0: For me too, yeah. Really, really interesting.
1: So I want to end here You know, uh, on some very uh, practical things. I mean, you argue that the most powerful anti-poverty strategies are changing policies, changing practices, and changing our way of thinking about these things are you optimistic that we are making progress on these three fronts i am optimistic that we
0: know more than we used to in terms of making progress you know i in my book and in real life i go back and forth between feeling optimistic and feeling pessimistic about the opportunities for kids who are growing up in poverty you know on the whole we're not doing a good job you know we're, we're not doing a good job and we're not and things are not improving. We don't have a system to support kids who are growing up in poverty, especially deep poverty. And arguably, the situation is worse for kids in poverty now than it was a couple of decades ago. So it's hard to feel super optimistic when that is the situation in the country as a whole. But one part of what I say in the conclusion to the book is that I think when faced with certain of these interventions that I think are using really, really different, deep, innovative ideas to approach kids in a much more holistic kind of way, To look at them not just as problems, but as uh, kids with lots of possibility, to look at them not just as sort of vessels for, you know, giving them information and having that come out in test scores, but as kids who are going to need to learn, who need to learn in a much broader, more engaged kind of way. Individual kids' lives can change in, in in profound ways. There's a lot that teachers can do. There's a lot that parents can do. There's a lot that policymakers can do. So, so I I feel like I feel both. I feel both optimistic and pessimistic. I feel pessimistic. I feel bummed out about where we are as a nation in terms of what we're doing for our kids who are growing up in poverty. I feel hopeful when I see what some of the new approaches to helping those kids do better are.
1: Awesome. And thank you for raising awareness through your book and your writings of these important topics. I think that they can only help with our uh, changing these public policies or things. So thank you, Paul. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com.